Listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear were told February 13th at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Close Quarters, and live music was provided by the Shoreline Band. Tonight at Mudrooms, this is the place where seven people, seven of your friends and neighbors, tell a story for approximately seven minutes each. The money that you give goes right to charity. It doesn't go anywhere else. And we're starting a new charity tonight. And that charity is the Great Bear Recovery Collective. And they're getting the proceeds for the next four shows. Other things, thank yous. We thank K2 for the use of the facilities and broadcasting our show. We want to thank Rookery and Travis for all the support in their great cookies. COPA, which provides the caffeine for us. Alaska Robotics, which hosts our website and Northern Light United Church. Our theme tonight is close quarters. Did you know that close quarters was originally a military term? You can read it in a Patrick O'Brien novel if you've never read one. Um, It's where your Navy vessel, because these were all wooden ships, before the other guys came alongside and jumped on board, you threw debris in their way to make it an obstacle course. Of course, O'Brien describes it in much longer description of an orderly application of stuff to the deck before you got boarded, but basically in some further scenes he describes you just throwing stuff out there to make it hazardous for the enemy to get you. But of course we know that that came to be sleeping on a boat really close to other people. We're thinking about other things, close quarters, uh, you know, working in an office. We're talking about the state capitol building. There's some offices that are so small and you're kind of elbow to elbow with your coworker. Even the old um, safes, you know, the Senate finance committee secretaries, for a long time their office was just in, in a safe. And I think there was four of them working in there in very close proximity. Or maybe you've lived in one of those classic Juno apartments that are, you know, on Star Hill or Fifth Street where the bed was as big as the wall or, you know, wall to wall, corner to corner, and you can't open the door if there's a bed in there. But somehow people manage to live in those little apartments. So we have seven stories tonight around the theme Close Quarters. Uh, The way the format of the evening works is we have seven stories, each are seven minutes long. Um, We'll do four and then take a 15-minute intermission, and then three and we're out of here. Um, At at five minutes, as a timing warning, um, we do a call. I don't know which of these is which, um, but the five minute sounds like maybe this one? That's Miller. Oh, that's a seven. (laughs) I think. Okay, so the more high-pitched one you'll hear at five, and then if somebody goes to seven, you'll hear the lower-pitched one, which apparently is called the Easy Mallard. Our first storyteller tonight is Eve Soutier, and she is a veteran storyteller. She's told, I think five seasons ago, she told a story for us. But in 2002, Eve made a promise to herself to take a discovery flight. 
She instead jumped out of a plane and stowed the promise until it resurfaced in 2016. When she did her first solo in Gustavus, she honestly thought that her flight instructor was going to take her for a hot chocolate run. Instead, she was told to just bring the, pl the plane back in a usable form. Eve, come on up. So I got my private pilot's license on October 25th, 2017, after 15 months of training. <laughs> it's okay. Um, and my suggestion, if you ever want to take flying lessons, is to go find a standard-sized refrigerator box, find another adult, sit in that box for about an hour or so, and if you can do that, you have a little bit about what it takes to fly a Cessna 172. You learn a lot about yourself when you're flying. Not only do you learn how to land a plane, how to fly the plane, how to take off, and how not to kill yourself. My flight instructor likes to say that flying is hours and hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. So during those hours and hours of boredom, you tend to talk. You learn about yourself and you learn about your flight instructor. I instantly liked my CFI or my certified flight instructor when I first met him, but I made him interview for the job of teaching me. During the interview, he talked to me about his, his teaching um, process. And one of the things he did is he drew a square on a piece of paper and he scribbled all around the outside of the square. He pointed to the inside of the square and he said, this is the window that we will fly in. Then he pointed to the outside that he'd scribbled in and he said, this is death. My job is to keep you out of this. <laughs> so you find that CFIs can be very blunt, especially if they're not attached to a flight school. And he was blunt and I soon learned that he was the polar opposite of who I am. He is very conservative and deeply religious. I am very liberal and not religious. And that was one of the first things I learned about myself. I was far more prejudiced than I thought I was. But I kept going because I liked the man and I really liked flying. We uh, flew for, for several months and then the election came. And I kind of knew this question was coming, but he asked me who I voted for. And I decided I was going to be honest. And I told him, I voted for Hillary. I voted for who I felt was the least worst option at the time and who would do the least amount of damage to the future of the country. And instead of sitting in silence in that space the size of a standard bathtub, he started to ask me questions. And I asked him questions. And he was listening to me. And I was listening to him. And I realized that we were having a dialogue, not a debate. And I started to soften, my position started to soften, and I would ask him more questions. And one of the questions I asked him was about his church. And I found out that his church deals with social welfare within the church. If somebody needs rent assistance or food assistance or childcare assistance, the members come together and make sure that happens. They also ask for time and service in return but that's how it happens. And that was really interesting to me 
because I hadn't really thought of religion as a, a great thing or a good thing for, for the world, but it softened my perspective on it, and in its best form, religion could be a good thing. Fast forward a few months, and um, he had asked me about a quote at the end of my email, and it, it's from Viktor Frankl, and it's something to the effect of, live each day as if you were living a second time, but that you had behaved wrongly the first time. And Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor and a psychiatrist, and he was really interested in the fact that so many people had survived the death camps and had not committed suicide. And part of his life's work was suicide. And he found that when people had a purpose, they'd stick around. And we had discussed this. Fast forward a couple more weeks, maybe a month or two, and my instructor invited me to hear him talk at his church. And as he talked, I recognized part of our conversation. He was talking about Viktor Frankl. And so I like to think that our conversation maybe touched him a little bit too. It's interesting, um, when I was a teenager, my brother and I, we were both teenagers, and we had been bickering all morning long, and it, it escalated and escalated, and my father handcuffed us together. <laughs> and he said, you will either learn to get along with each other, or one of you will kill the other one. Either way, it will be quiet in here. And, there's a lot of wisdom to that, but I'm not advocating that we all go and find somebody we disagree with and handcuff ourselves to them. But I think that if we all started to treat our world a little bit like a small plane and start to listen with our ears and our head and our heart and stop thinking about the next thing we're going to say, we might not be living in the echo chamber we're living in. And even more importantly, I think about had I not... Our next speaker is Riley Woodford. Riley moved to Juneau in 1985. Like most folks in their mid-20s in downtown Juneau, he shared houses with housemates in close quarters living while enjoying the wide open spaces outdoors. He loved the old houses built close together on streets so steep that the sidewalks are staircases. In 1992, he moved into a small, uniquely situated... Barn Red House on 3rd Street, beginning a chapter in a tale of post-quarters living that you will hear next. Riley. So for 12 years, I lived downtown next door to the Bergman Hotel. <laughs> the Bergman Hotel is a boxy, four-story hotel on the corner of 3rd and Harris. And I lived right next door to it. The houses were really close together. It was built on the property line. And if you walked from my front yard to the backyard between the buildings, you could touch both buildings all the way back. It was like a short hike through a slot canyon. And if you stood in my backyard and looked up, there were 18 big windows, big curtainless, screenless windows. <laughs> nine of them were above my roof and nine of them were above my backyard. And if you, if you were up, say, on the fourth story, looking out of one of those windows, you didn't even see my house down below. You just looked out over town and the harbor, and if you flicked a cigarette, it would fly completely over my roof into my neighbor's yard. But if you dropped something, it would go you know, down onto my roof or into the slot canyon or maybe into my backyard. So I know, you know some people in this room have maybe 
peed off of a dock or a deck. Or <laughs> maybe some of you have even peed out of the four-story window of a hotel onto the asphalt shingle roof of a house 25 feet below. And it's really loud. It's really loud. But if you're in that house, under that roof, it's like somebody is running a garden hose on a drumhead. So that was my first introduction to the things that would come out of the windows of the Bergman. So there was a, there was a, a restaurant in the back of the Bergman on the first story, Pat's Grub State. So the week I moved in, in October of 1992, the deep fat fryer broke down in the, in the grub state. And it was about the size of a dorm fridge. So it fit through the window and they pushed it out the window into the backyard. And that was how I met Pat. I went over and said, hey, could you come and get this deep fat fryer? <laughs> and, I, and I got the answer that I would get for the next 12 years, the answer that anyone in the neighborhood, everyone got anytime we went to the Bergman and asked anything. And that was, sure. And then nothing would ever happen. <laughs> so after about four months, a friend came over and we pulled that thing out of the big puddle of coagulated grease, drug it around the back of the hotel, and leaned it up against the side of the building with all of the other broken appliances and soggy mattresses that had been leaned up back there. So now I had this big puddle of coagulated grease to deal with, and all of this other organic matter that was raining out of those windows. So I just composted it. I just thought, I'll make a compost, and so I shoveled in half-eaten ramen and regurgitated takeout and condoms and everything. And, and there were things that were lost out of the windows, too. Like, I composted cocaine and, and, and I composted Dear John letters. Everything went into the compost. But it wasn't all bad. I found a $100 bill once in the backyard. And one time, an unopened bottle of Crown Royal in a little purple velvet bag survived the fall. So eventually, Pat's Grub State closed and things quieted down a little bit, but, but people still sometimes, you know, pushed all of the furniture in their room out the windows. Those big, screenless, curtainless windows, they just tied the whole neighborhood together in a, this is a big fishbowl and somebody should change the water sort of way, but <laughs> the water never changed. We just got new fish all the time, different new fish. And on the other side of the Bergman, right, the, the uphill side, there's another 18 windows, and the people over there, they looked down into the windows, and they saw things that they'll never unsee. <laughs> and at the top of the Third Street stairs, they actually could look down on the roof of the Bergman and wonder things like, why is there an entire moose carcass on the roof of the hotel? <laughs> and we, you know, we lost parking spaces to the same burned-up couches, and we walked around the same broken hot water heaters, and... I was just the closest cleaning up when ravens managed to push the moose bones off the roof. So this one January, there was about two feet of fresh snow downtown. And my wife worked evenings at the newspaper at the Empire, and she called at 1045 and said, I'll be home at 11. So just as I hang up the phone, I hear this woman's voice. And she goes, "Woohoo!" And then I hear this dude go, say it again, baby. And I go into the bathroom and I slide open the bathroom window and I look up and in the fourth story window up there above me, there's, there's a woman sitting in the windowsill and she's looking, she's facing into the room, but I can see the back of her head and she's leaning back. And then I can see her back, you know, and she's leaning way back. And then I see her waist. She's leaning way back and it's pretty obvious she's going to come out of the window and she does. So she falls out the window 
and hits the roof, boom, right above my head. And then boom, 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 she rolls down through the snow and bam, there she is, laid out, half naked, in the slot canyon, in the snow, completely KO'd. So I, I can tell you now that, you know, nothing was broken. She was just stunned. She was fine. <laughs> so the windows slide up in the Bergman, and people are calling 911. And then this guy comes down, and he's like, got a lighter, right? And he's waving it in her face. He's going, hey, baby, are you okay? And he's shaking her and stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, don't shake her, don't shake her. Just get a blanket, put a blanket on her. So then all of a sudden, there's lights flashing off the side of the building and everything. And paramedics come and they come down through the slot canyon with a stretcher and they put her on it and strap her down and she starts swinging and stuff yelling, Mose, Mose, what's happening, Mose? So Mose, Mose is gone. <laughs> and the paramedics are looking at me like. <laughs> and then there's a knock at the door and I go and it's the police, right? And they want to know if she was pushed out the window. And I said, well, yeah. yeah. She was pushed out the window, and well, was it intentional? And I said, well, no, I'm sure it wasn't intentional. And he's like, okay, fine. So I shut the door, and I'm just standing there in the living room looking at the door, and my wife walks in, and she says, what? <laughs> I was like, a lot can happen in 15 minutes. <laughs> Thank you. Our next speaker is Ryan Wilson. Ryan was born and raised in Alaska, mostly Juneau, and he currently works as a local government specialist assisting rural and tribal governments in the northern portions of southeast Alaska. From 2008 to 2010, Ryan and his wife Samantha served in the United States Peace Corps in a small rural fishing village in the Philippines. During his service, Ryan worked to assist the local government oh, and I should have practiced this, of Catalogan Batangas with fisheries and coastal resource management. This is just one of the many stories engendered by his service. Come on up, Ryan, and correct my pronunciation. Thank you for the introduction. I'm, I'm honored and humbled to be here. I'm even more honored and humbled by the fact that uh, somehow my story merits attention worthy of this fantastic fundraising opportunity brought to us by these uh, mudroom organizers. So thank you guys very much. From 2008 to 2010, my wife and I, we served in the United States Peace Corps in a small rural fishing village called Kalatagan, Batangas. Now service in the Peace Corps is amazing. It's wonderful. It's one of the most fast fantastic opportunities anybody could ever hope for. In a million different ways, I absolutely love my Peace Corps experience. But for every way that I love the Peace Corps, there's an equally difficult hardship or circumstance to overcome. For example, there is no toilet paper in uh, the small rural village I, I worked at. Um, a, a bathroom in the Philippines consists of a faucet, a bucket, a ladle, and either a hole in the ground or a toilet. Now I'm going to let you guys' imaginations run wild on this one. That's a story in and of itself. Um, there's also the equatorial heat and humidity of the Philippines, which is ridiculous. It's hard to even create the words. I don't even know if I have the vernacular to describe how hot and humid the Philippines really is. It's 95 degrees to 115 degrees every day for four months, without exception. Um, my wife and I, we used to throw buckets of water on each other, 
and then we'd jump on our moped and drive down the road until the water evaporated, and that was the only way we could cool down. We'd do the same thing at night. I'd throw a bucket of water on her, she'd throw a bucket of water on me, fully clothed. We'd pour our, uh, our fan at the bed, and then we'd wait and hopefully fall asleep before the water evaporated, because that was really the only way to do it. There's also your living situations. The Peace Corps requires for the first six months of service that you live with a host family in the Peace Corps. In our particular circumstance, this was a host family of nine in a single bedroom household in a objectively impoverished neighborhood of seaweed farmers. What this meant was that my wife and I occupied the one bedroom, nine other members of our family, including young ones as little as three years old, slept on the floor outside of our room. At night, when we had to use the restroom, we would tiptoe around our family members, our host family members, and use the restroom. And that's just the way it was. There's also the insects, and the rodents, and the spiders, and the geckos. How many of you guys are scared of rodents, rats, or mice? Anybody raise hands? Yeah, quite a few. Um, there was this one night where there was like a territorial dispute of a rat and another rat in our rafters. And I remember waking up, hearing the shrieks, and from our rafters, a rat fell right in between my wife and scurried across my chest and onto the floor and ran out. There were, you know, large spiders. There was a situation where I walked over to the corner of our room, and I picked up the shoebox, and without noticing right away, a large spider crawled out from underneath the shoebox and onto my arm. People will tell you you only have two reactions in a situation like this, right? Fight or flight. They forget the fact that you have the freeze and shit your pants response as well. <laughs> But beyond all the other difficulties in the Peace Corps, the, the hardest thing to deal with was the fact that no matter where my wife and I went, we always garnered a whole lot of attention. And it's obvious why. Um, I stand about six inches taller than your average Filipino. Um, it didn't matter how much sun we got or how, many, how, how tan we were, I was still a white guy. I didn't speak the language very good for the first probably 18 months. Uh, the Peace Corps also assigns you really lofty goals when you go over there. In my circumstance, they wanted me to work on fisheries. Uh, they wanted me to prevent people from using dynamite and cyanide fishing. A practice that had gone on for 70 plus years in the Philippines at this time. My wife was there to improve the literacy rates of the children in the school system. So we were basically blonde-haired, blue-eyed giants sent from America to save the world. And the, the attention that we, we started to garner became a little adverse. And we didn't necessarily know this at first. Uh, we had to experience it. And when people start to, to ask you to come to different celebrations, it's not like you're going to say no, especially since one of the, the reasons we were there was to create relations with this host country. So we would go to things like uh, birthday parties and funerals and weddings, and we would of course, garner a whole lot of attention and maybe take some of the attention away from the subject of the celebration. So when, while we were learning this, we um, were one time asked to go to a fiesta in a neighboring barangay, or a neighboring province. Uh, the province was about three, four hours away uh, by car. And we go 
there, and fiestas are great. Fiestas are like our Thanksgiving celebrations, except uh, it's an open door policy. Anybody can come in, strangers, family, friends alike, neighbors, they all come, you sing karaoke, of course, and you eat and drink all day. It's a fantastic celebration. So we go to this, and it's great, and somehow, uh, and I think this was because I didn't necessarily understand the language so well, so when people would ask me things, I would just nod generally, like, yes, I, I would hear one or two words that I was familiar with, and I would become agreeable real quick, and, and somehow this snowballed into my wife and I going to a funeral and then a wedding. And over the course of three days, and the only thing we had prepared for was this actual fiesta, so we have t-shirts and shorts and, and flip-flops. Well, we end up at this, this wedding, which is a, a big open chapel like this, and we're trying as hard as possible to avoid any attention. Um, I would slouch down a little bit and eek by people and stuff, and we sat at our table, which was near the front of the procession. And at the end of the, the, the session, the procession, they release two doves, or what looked like doves. One was a little bit larger than the other, and the small one flies right up to the rafters. It's in a setting just like this, but open walls. And it flies right up to the rafters, and the bigger one follows it. And I'm watching it, and I, I'm, I'm pretty compelled by this whole situation because the bird is, is larger. And I, I could tell right, after, right off the bat that it wasn't necessarily flying so great. And after it sees the first one land on the rafters, it goes up and falls it and kind of skips a step and hits its back end on the rafters. And I'm mesmerized by this whole situation. And it starts doing that death spiral that, that birds do. And I'm watching it and I'm, I'm, it's almost like there's magnet beams coming out of my eyes and it's coming right at me. And so I turn to my wife, and I duck. <laughs> Smack! The bird hurts her right in the face. So much for avoiding attention. There was blood everywhere, blood on me, blood on everything. Anyways, guys, thanks. That's my story. I appreciate you guys listening. Our next speaker is Jenny John. She's a native of Portland and has lived throughout the Pacific Northwest, Texas, and Oaxaca, Mexico, before landing in Juneau almost three years ago. Jenny enjoys the water, spending time with her family and friends who have become family. Jenny works in the health office at Gastineau Elementary, so if your knee hurts or you need a Band-Aid, you should probably go see her. Please welcome Jenny to the stage. In 2009, I was part of a medical mission team, and we would go to Nicaragua. We were invited by the Mosquito Indians to come into their village, a village called Walakitang, and it is on the Rio Coco, and if you know anything about geography, or if you don't, I'm just going to tell you anyway. The Rio Coco is the border river between Honduras and Nicaragua. We were invited to go there, so we went. They have, it's classic jungle. To get there, it is an eight-hour drive on unpaid, unpaved roads, followed by a two-day canoe ride on the river. And the canoes are tall trees that have been felled and dug out by machete, and they are round-bottom boats, and they're about, I don't know, three feet wide by 60 feet long, so they're long and skinny, and when you sit in it, your knees are touching the person in front of you, and you have knees in the back of you, and they fit about eight people with our gear. 
And it is two solid days of sitting in the hot sun in Central America, rain and heat and everything for two days, and you get to know the person in front of you really well, and you get to lean on the person behind you. And you pretty much can only talk to those people unless you lean over the side of the boat, in which case you risk tipping the entire boat because, like I said, it is a round-bottom boat. So we go, and the more that you go into the river, or excuse me, into the jungle, the more it becomes like Indiana Jones. The trees are all low over you. There's snakes in the river, and there's caiman, which is like a crocodile, more like an alligator, and turtles in the water, and the water is disgusting and gross, and uh, it's hot. And on the way there, you have to spend the night in a village, you ask permission, and then they let you stay in the village, and then you get in the boat the next day, and you do the whole thing, sun up to sundown, you're on this boat. <clears throat> and we're in the village after three days of travel, of just being in the country, three days of travel. And like I said, it was a medical mission, so we start, we set up. And one of the first questions that we ask is, if you are experiencing any of these signs and symptoms of having a parasite, please stand in this large section over here. Anyone else who has any other ailments, shoulders, feet, pregnancy, whatever, and you need to be seen for something else, please stand over here. Needless to say that this parasite group is very, very large. So we come with a lot of anti-parasitic medicine, and we pass that out like candy because that's what they've asked us to come and do and, and help. So we're there, we're three days in the jungle, and we get into the boat to come back, and we go and we spend the night on the river, again, in someone's hut. The huts that we're staying in are basically just poles, and they are bamboo walls and thatched roofs. And we're sleeping in hammocks, and our hammocks are up on these poles, as many as we can get of our team onto, into one hut, so we can occupy as little space as possible and all stay together. So putting all of those hammocks up, you're pretty much at the whim and mercy of where the hammock could stay the best with your weight and everyone else's weight around you and not make the whole hut collapse. So it's already been three or four days. We're hot, we're stinky, we're dirty. We've just done this great thing, helped all these people, kissed all the faces, and done all this. So we're there, and it's pitch dark, and it's night, and it's silent. And I wake up, and I realize that from my waist down is completely wet, and I'm covered in diarrhea. And I'm laying there and I'm thinking, what time is it? It's pitch dark. And the really big problem is that the hammock of the person underneath me is about six inches from my waist. And I don't want to wake him up like that. <laughs> and I don't think that he wants to be woken up like that either. My hammock had been hung about five feet off the ground. So I have to be lifted up into my hammock in order to get in there that night anyway. And one of the guys had put me in my hammock and I was in there and I wake up in the middle of the night covered in stuff. 
What time is it? I have no idea. Is it almost dawn? Because I can make it to almost dawn. And I go in and out of sleep, and I am crampy, and I'm hurting, and it's stinky, and it's hot, and it's dark, and I can't get out of my hammock because it's five feet off the ground. It, dawn never comes. So I have to get out of my hammock and make my way over the cows and over the snakes to try to get to the outhouse. So I hear somebody saying, oh. So I sit up, and I get out of my hammock like this, meaning that all of that stuff is coming up all over my clothes, all the way up, and then I have to go into the outhouse. I'm covered in it. It's, it's not coming off. There's nothing I can do. There's no running water. The next day, somebody helps clean me up. They strip me down. They put cleaner clothes on me. And then I have to get back into that boat for another eight hours of sitting there sick. I still don't feel good. So we're in the boat, and we're about four hours in. And I wave to my driver, and I'm like, I'm sorry, but we need to pull over. There's no rest areas, but if you could please pull over, I would really. And he's like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, we need to pull over right now. Please hurry. So we pull over, and I scurry up a bank, still cramping, still not feeling very well. And I scurry up a bank, and I look around, and I don't see any snake tracks. So I, I pull down my pants, and I squat, and I realize that I am standing right over an anthill. <laughs> you guys, that's gross. <laughs> so I brush all the ants off my backside. And I walk all frumped over into the boat. And I can tell you that when we got back into the next village, it was the best shower I had ever had. <laughs> Thanks. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded February 13, 2018 at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Close Quarters. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. Our next speaker is Corrine Conlin. Corrine is a sort of person who likes new experiences. This sense of adventure has led her to the stage tonight to tell you the story of a misadventure of teaching in the Marshall Islands. Not sure where the Marshall Islands are? Well, neither was she when she went. I was in Brooklyn house-sitting when I got the teaching offer, and 
the first thing I did when I put down the phone was to look for an atlas to figure out where exactly I was going. And when you turn to the atlas, you have two light blue pages with black dots, and that's where the Marshall Islands are. So the Marshall Islands sit about halfway between Hawaii and Papua New Guinea. Um, they, um, it's 2,000 square miles of ocean, but only a landmass the size of Washington, D.C. There's a whole lot of ocean. And so I got off the plane, and just like the person who told the story in the Philippines, there is nothing quite like that furnace as you step off that air-conditioned plane. And my friend Laura, who had connected me with the job, picked me up. And, and in the Marshall Islands, you wear something over your shoulder, and you cover your knees for modesty's sake. But when I got into that car, I hiked up my skirt as far as I could. And so we drove to the school, and the school sat there, and then the teaching quarters were right next to it, mostly comprised of shipping containers. That was my bedroom. And so it's, it's a great place. I had a great fourth grade. Um, there's people from the Philippines. From I had a student from Burma. I had students from Samoa, Ukraine. Um, it was just a really very collection. And in the spring semester while I was there, there wasn't very many vacations. And we live in Juneau. And Part of the reason I love living here is because I love going to the grocery store and talking to people and seeing people and knowing who people are as you kind of traverse your life. But there's also those times when you just want to go someplace, someplace where you can people watch or flip your finger off when you're driving and not have to worry that they're your neighbor or your coworker, or you're gonna run into them at parent-teacher conferences. <laughs> and so the same thing happens in the Marshall Islands. So it's, um, it's a atoll, so some of it was kind of developed. There's a highway that goes from Laura Beach, um, thanks to World War II, that's after um, Lauren Bacall, and it goes to Rita, after Rita Hayward. And so that part is pretty compressed, and there's lots of people on it. But Pearl S. Buck called it the Pearl Necklace of the Pacific, and so it's really a series of islets, not islands, but islets, and they stretch all the way around to the deep water port around a lagoon. And so on Nuclear Remembrance Day, remember, Marshall Islands have Bikini Atoll, so that's why we have that holiday. And after a morning teacher in-service, I was free to get away, and my goal was to go to an islet without anyone there. No students, no parents, no one that I knew. And so as I left, and you go, and you're in your sandals, and you're walking over the limestone, and you're stepping around Marshallese clams, which are turquoise and blues, and you're seeing different sea stars and, and things like that. It's a really amazing place. It's the Condé Nast magazine of what paradise looks like. White sand beaches, coconut palms, turquoise blue water, and the the current is pulling into the lagoon and there's a huge surf crashing 100 feet. Sometimes the spaces between the islets were maybe 100 feet and some of them were a half mile. And so the further I got, 
the lighter I felt. And so in my board shorts that um, I covered my knees, I started putting shells that I collected along the way until I found my islet. And there it was, peaceful, no one around. And I laid out my blanket, I pulled out my shells, decorated my blanket, and I was there all by myself. I then went swimming just in my swimsuit, without a t-shirt, without shorts. It was very luxurious. The water temperature is 84 degrees, so you could swim for an hour. And it just felt so nice to get away. And then I got back to my blanket, only to find that hermit crabs had come as if it was Nuclear Remembrance Day fire sale, and they had taken all my beautiful shells and left gray, ugly shells behind. <laughs> so, a little disappointed by, by the remembrance, um, I sat down, and, and in the tropics, sunset, happens really quickly. There's no long twilights like they were here. And so the sun's starting to set, and then the tides come off. I'm stuck there on the islet, but all around there's coconut fronds rustling and moving, and occasionally I see a rat peer out, and there I am on my islet all by myself. And so I, um, get into my bivy sack because that will protect me and I just pretend everything's okay. And there's things that are crawling over me and they could be crabs and they could be rats, but so I have a choice. And basically the choice is I can be really frustrated and be really unnerved or I can just kind of let it go. And so I did and I sat there and I watched the Southern Cross rise up from the sky, move across the horizon. And then, finally, after a long night of watching the, the stars and the constellations, it was daylight. And so I packed up my blanket, shook off any remaining gray shells from it, and went and walked back as fast as I could back to the crowded density of Rita. And there I was back, happily, in close quarters. Our next speaker is Kate Glover. Kate moved to Juneau about 10 years ago and stuck around for the mountains, the whales, the people, and the snow we used to have. A few years ago, she and her then-boyfriend Rob took a three-year hiatus to sail around the Pacific in a tiny 32-foot sailboat. Along the way, they learned a lot about close quarters and big oceans. Please welcome Kate to the stage. As we were preparing for our Grand Pacific Adventure, Rob's collection of books included titles like 20 Sailboats to Take You Anywhere and How to Sail Around the World, while mine was focused on what I thought were more realistic concerns like shark attack, disaster on the high seas, and the Queen's birthday storm. When I broke the plan to my coworkers, one of them warned me that the whole thing had the makings, had the makings of, a, of a B-grade horror flick. Girl and boy get on boat, boy knocks girl off boat, only one comes back. <laughs> but I wasn't, I wasn't worried about this because I had set three conditions before we left. The first was no throwing me off the boat, which I thought was pretty reasonable. The second was 
and you can't leave me anywhere that I can't get home from, no matter how mad you are at me. And the third one was, I get to keep enough money in my bank account to buy a plane ticket home. Rob thought the first condition was overbroad, so I reluctantly revised it to no throwing me overboard while the boat is in motion, and he agreed. <laughs> About a year into our adventure, we found ourselves in the Galapagos, trying to find a weather, waiting to pick a weather window to jump across the Pacific. Jump makes it sound a lot faster and more proactive than it really is. The boat sails about six knots in a stiff breeze. Most of you can probably run that fast pretty comfortably. And by waiting for a weather window, I mean that we were, while many people had given up on waiting for the trade winds to fill in and were making slow progress to the west in the fitful equatorial breezes, Rob was intermittently sitting on the floor of the boat, sometimes roasting and other times shivering, asking me if it was cold outside. Well, I was having a really great time swimming with sea lions in a clear bay nearby. The delay turned out to be fortuitous, though, because a couple days later, Rob was feeling better, and we had a forecast for perfect southeast trade winds to take us all the way across to the Marquesas. We left in the afternoon after I'd taken my mandatory last run on shore before three weeks of confinement, and I sadly waved goodbye to my sea lion friends and sniffled and gazed longingly at the land while Rob danced a jig. And as the sun set, the islands disappeared, and in the morning, you couldn't see land anywhere. The sails were full, the motion of the boat was a little queeze-inducing as we were rocking and rolling in big open ocean waves. And a couple days in, the last of the birds disappeared, and there really wasn't much life to see, except for occasionally a dolphin jumping off in the distance. You'd have blue skies stretching everywhere, filled with lines of puffy trade wind clowns, clouds and blue ocean all around you. But it took me about three days to start having vivid dreams of finding an uncharted island with calm fjord-like anchorages and brilliant running terrain. <laughs> so during the daytime, we'd spend our time together in the cockpit, which is only about two feet by two feet, and you're both trying to be on the uphill side because the downhill side is getting sloshed by waves and sitting together there, but at night you take turns watching the boat and helping it sail along. But for the most part, it just sails itself. So you spend your time reading books, having long, detailed, intense conversations about which whale you'd be if you could be a whale, and <laughs> which night had better phosphorescence. Then you might think about doing sit-ups, but you never actually do them. And so when you get, we had a dance competition to mark our halfway point, and I think Rob won that. And then we wondered what on earth it is that everyone else does on their boats for all this time. So finally, when I got bored, if you're me, you act like a five-year-old and harass your companion to entertain yourself. To you do things like crowding him in the cockpit. When he starts walking up the 15 feet to the front of the boat, you ask him why he's ignoring you and follow him. Then you sing the song that never ends, and maybe you throw things at him, and then you try 2,999 miles to go to the Marquesas every time he checks the map. <laughs> maybe that's why it was always so hard to wake him up on his night watch. A couple weeks and a couple thousand miles in, we decided it was about time to try fishing. And we'd learned over time that if you put one of the flying fish that land on the boat on the deck at night on the line, you're bound to catch fish eventually. So we strung a line with flying fish, and. A couple hours later, we reeled in a mahi-mahi, which if you haven't seen them, these fish are, they flash colors in the stress of death, and they're so beautiful that you feel guilty about killing them. But we did. 
It was lovely. And just as Rob was prepping the grill, we noticed the unmistakable dark lines of a squall cloud behind us, quickly approaching the boat. So Rob told me to man the grill while he manned the sails, and as the clouds came closer and the wind started screeching, I braced with one hand on the boat, I gripped the deck with my toes, and I held the top of the grill on with the other hand, and Rob ran around cursing wildly and shortening the sails. A few minutes later, the squall had passed, a rainbow came out in its wake, and our mahi steaks were only just a tad bit overdone, but not too bad. As we were eating them, a crew of about a dozen, half a dozen black fins rose powerfully out of the waves and came swimming towards the boat. And the line of the pot of false killer whales quickly caught up to us. We had a couple of them surfing the wake behind the boat. We had one of them swimming nearly as long as the boat, swimming right alongside us, looking up at us eye to eye. And then we had, at the end, two of them explode out of the water 10 feet away in synchronized flips. So we toasted the scene with the last of our coconuts as they, they swam off ahead of us. About a week later, we were both ready to stretch our legs when we finally arrived at Hiva'oa. There might not be any better place in the world to arrive for two weary sailors than Hiva'oa. It's a beautiful, high, old volcano, jungle-clad, full of towering banyan vines and mango trees and palms and red hibiscus flowers everywhere. We took advantage of the first opportunity to take a hike to the top of the island through the towering jungle where you would find ancient tikis staring out at you behind the ferns and the vines. And we climbed up to the top of a knife-edge ridge in the fog where Rob proposed to me. Apparently after crossing an ocean, I had passed some undisclosed series of cryptic tests. <laughs> I like to think that it was my stunning performance in the occasional pirate attacks that finally won him over. And I said yes, of course, because conditions are not really, there wasn't an option at that point. <laughs> we sailed back into Juneau a couple of years ago, and we got married, and last fall we bought a house and we moved off the boat. The house, it turns out, is exactly the same length as the boat. <laughs> Final speaker this evening is Bruce Wyrock. Bruce was raised in Lincoln, Nebraska, and he worked as a gandy dancer on the Burlington Northern Railroad. You don't get to say that very much. He worked there for three years before he moved to Sitka, where there's no railroad, and where he helped build a salmon hatchery at Sheldon Jackson College. Bruce is married to Luann, they have three kids, and live at Oak Bay. Bruce? Wally Butler was a normal 16-year-old kid. His brother Larry grew up in Waterloo, Iowa. And in Pearl Harbor Day in 1944, he wanted to do nothing more than join the Army and fight in the war. But Larry had to wait until he was 18 when he graduated from college and immediately did what he wanted to do. He joined the Army and he wanted to fight World War II. So Larry thought what he wanted to do was be a medic and help others. So he got his training in the United States. He went from post to post around the United States to get his training. And finally, in 19, he landed on Omaha Beach on the, with the 101st, or excuse me, the 109th evacuation hospital. And as they made their way across France, towards Germany, 
to the south of Belgium in 1944, December, all of a sudden, Germans and Hitler decided to march a counteroffensive. It was the Battle of the Bulge. And the 109th EVAC hospital was to the south of Belgium. And the Germans pushed hard. And the 109th evacuation hospital was using a farmhouse for their field headquarters, along with the field command for mar marshaling the troops in that area. And they became apparent that they would be the tip of the bulge. They would be the edge of the bulge, and they would have to evacuate the hospital, and they would have to retreat while the Germans advanced. But Larry, as part of the 109th EVAC, was dealing with the terrible carnage and the massive wounds caused by the terrible weapons of World War II. You can't imagine what a bullet or a piece of hot shrapnel can do to flesh. So as a private in the 109th EVAC, he was tasked with dealing with these wounded, maimed men in this evacuation hospital in this farmhouse. But it became apparent that everyone would have to retreat and the Germans would have to take over the farmhouse and capture these Germans. Because the command leadership at the time believed if we leave the wounded behind, they'll get better care and they possibly will die because of their massive trauma and wounds. They'll be moved back, back west, or excuse me, yeah, back west. And that, they just couldn't have that. They, they, they would rather have them face their fate with the Germans rather than the certainty of death. So Larry said, let's move these men upstairs above this farmhouse. And the farmhouse was no bigger than this area. And so what happened is these men slowly moved these wounded upstairs to the, to the attic of this farmhouse. And they were preparing to leave Larry behind with all these wounded men and he said, wait, let's make it look like this has been shelled because there were bomb fragments, there were craters around the farmhouse and there, were, there was trash everywhere. So what they did is they made garbage and trash and beams and wood on the stairs going up to the, the attic where Larry and these men were, and they made it look like it was destroyed upstairs. Meanwhile, Larry's upstairs with these men, and he takes off his boots. This is in December of 1944. He puts tape and cotton on the, on the uh, legs of these cots. He tapes the men's mouth shuts who are moaning, and he takes a lot of capsules of morphine to keep these men quiet. And so the U.S. leaves, the U.S. troops leave, the command headquarters leaves, and he's upstairs with these wounded men. It's dawn, and outside he can hear German voices. Then there's a kick at the door, and the Germans occupy the lower part of this farmhouse. The Germans now are using this farmhouse as their field headquarters when he's upstairs. And for a day and a half, Larry has got to tend to these men and keep them quiet. He's got to keep them on morphine so they can't moan and they can't groan. He's got to deal with their bodily functions and clean up with them. He's got to keep his own body quiet. He's got to move with the stealth of a mouse. The murmuring of voices, the crackle of German voices on the radio, the shooting outside the door, and finally, he hears the Germans leave because the United States under General Patton is moving south and is pushing the bulge back. 
Then the Germans left. And Larry's upstairs, it becomes quiet. But all of a sudden, he hears US voices. He hears American voices. And the Americans retake the farmhouse. They pull the materials from the stairs. He shouts. And every single one of those men then is evacuated back to the field hospital, further back into France, then to Britain and the United States. And every single man in that attic died. And Larry Butler gets a field commission from General Patton for his work. Later, Larry returns to the United States, marries my mom, and nine months after I'm born, he's killed by a drunk. But Larry was a neat guy. And I'm very grateful he was my dad. You're listening to Mudrooms on KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live on February 13, 2018. The theme for the evening was Close Quarters. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit us online at mudrooms.org. Audio production by Alita Bus. Additional help from storyboard members Melissa Griffiths, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Rich Moniak, and Sarah Hannon. Music by the Shoreline Band. I'm Alita Bus. Have a good night. Thank you, folks.